Welcome to the Earthian Podcast, where I explore the everyday stories, emotions, and realities that make up the human experience as we know it on Earth. Today's guest lives in Portland, Oregon, by way of Bellingham in Seattle, Washington. I met him in September of last year when he first moved to Portland, and we've become good friends ever since. The more I get to know him, the more I am in awe of his ability to genuinely connect with people, his unique way of looking at life, and how he holds himself as a person. In this conversation, we talk about his parents and their influence on his life, about the path of self-exploration and growth, about when to respect fear and when to say fuck you. This is my conversation with Dylan Green. So, uh, the farm. Can you describe what that, what, yeah. what ages was that? Where was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was born in Florida. When I was two and a half, my family moved to Bellingham, Washington. So across the country. When I was five, my parents bought a farm in Deming, Washington, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's pretty far, like Northwest Washington. And I think their initial like interest for doing that was um just having more space Mm -hmm. and also like introducing my sister and i to like a pretty different lifestyle um so they bought a farm we were my sister and i were homeschooled there so pretty much every day looked like waking up at four or five uh doing chores which sometimes meant like feeding baby sheep or cows or like cleaning out pig stalls and then we would have school from like eight to like 10 or 11. It was only a few hours. Yeah. And then just go back to taking care of animals. And um, it was awesome, man. Like that period of my life, I feel like was really formative in the sense of like me being able to have a lot of space, me being able to like spend a lot of time around animals, which I think is really important. It breeds a lot of empathy, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, there was like pretty much boundless opportunities for creativity you know my sister and I were and our there we had some neighbors who are our age we'd build a lot of tree forts we would you know we were outside all the time we made up our own languages we drew maps of everything (laughs) like actually this is a map of of the area our farm was right there yeah yeah um so yeah the I to me like you know I'm a creative and I think that a lot of my experience growing up on that farm was the you know the foundation for a lot of like the creativity that I draw from now yeah so yeah. what what kind of things uh did you do when you were on that farm that in a way in an abstract way or even like a direct way do you still do now as a creative uh oh, that's a great question um hmm well one of the things about the farm is that there's all these animals that are relying on you and mm-hmm. like if you don't take care of them they'll die you know yeah. and um one of the things that we'd do is we'd take our our animals to uh the fair like state fairs and for the animals that you would enter to like, either fit and show mm-hmm. or livestock like competitions you had to keep these things called record books so literally from the moment that you either purchase the animal or it was born in our case, a lot of them were born because we breed, we bred sheep and chickens and goats and all sorts of stuff. You have to keep track of feeding them and like literally their daily routine every single day until you bring them to the fair. Yeah. And so there's two parts of that. One is 
how much an animal relies on you. So at an early age, learning a, this like sort of responsibility of animal husbandry and taking care of something. And then the other part was just keeping track of all that information and like being very, uh, you know, being very process oriented. And I think that both of those sorts of um, habits that were developed early on for me definitely translate into my work in, the, in terms of like how I, you know, maintain focus on prep on my projects and how I address my clients and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, we also did a lot of creative stuff on the farm that we also entered at fairs. So like there was a lot of like pretty ridiculous like things that fairs host. So for instance, one of them was like brown bag lunches, um, where you design like the perfect lunch to get fit into a brown bag, paper bag. And then mm. I would do like a lot of Lego competitions. So I'd enter like different Lego sets that I'd build. Right. Um, we do a lot of art. Um, we do poster design. Uh, one year we did like an entrepreneur's club thing. Like there's all mm. sorts of different, like, you know, very creative outlets that my, my parents would put out in front of us. And my sister and I would choose whatever ones we wanted to do. Yeah. Which was cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I want to get back to the, um, growing up on a farm but i also want to talk about this thing uh taking care of animals I yeah mean, obviously related but like yeah how does that carry into like how you is it let me ask does that does that carry into how you treat people does that how you does that influence how you treat relationships or anything like that um i don't think i think that you know like animals and people are pretty compartmentalized in my mind so mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. like you know i don't think there's too much crossover there but I think to reference what I said earlier, like the sense of empathy that's built when you take care of an animal will absolutely impact the way that you just approach life in general. So I guess the way that I'd like explain that is like the contrast. So if you're, if you're someone who doesn't grow up around, around a lot of animals, which is probably most people, honestly, yeah. um, you're not seeing the impacts of like your lack of responsibility if you're not taking care of an animal. Right. Yep. So for instance, we had, um, we, we had a lot of sheep and I really, really loved taking care of these like lambs. Like, you know, we would birth, we'd help, you know, assist in the birthing. And then you'd see this lamb, you'd, you'd neuter it. You would, uh, you remove their tails with like these rubber band things. Like there's all sorts of these crazy processes that you go through and it makes you care for this thing so much, you yeah. know? And when you have that sort of deep level of care, I think that that definitely breeds again, like that empathy and a lot of compassion for sure for just for life in general. Yeah. Yeah. So, and also like in my adult life, ever since moving off the farm, there's been periods where I haven't had like a pet and I'm like, I go crazy. Like I always have had a pet. Mm -hmm. So I've had like a hedgehog. I've had, I had a, a <laughs> lizard at one point. I have Kumamoto, my cat now. Um, but it's like having some sort of a, a, a animal presence, I think, is, has always been like something that I yearn for. Just like the companionship, but then also like, you know, taking care of something I think is cool. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. Um, how was growing up? Can you talk about your, your family relationships? Uh, yeah. Like especially with your sister and your parents? Yeah. Um, man, we've always had a pretty tight-knit family. There's only four of us. Um, my parents are both entrepreneurs to the core. And I think that that has impacted me a lot for sure. My sister is the total opposite. She's much more like 
on the straight and narrow, still a very, very creative, like talented person, but like has so much more focus on like checking the boxes before like going off into the ethers of risk territory, which mm, is like I where I live exclusively. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, my parents, you know, express their, their desire to do different things, you know, such as moving from Florida to a farm in Northwest Washington. Yeah. Um, my dad's in food beverage hospitality industry, so he's worked in all sorts of different layers of that industry. Um, everything from being a janitor for a giant oven company to being a pizza consultant and everything in between. Uh, my mom owned a spa and a day spa and salon when I was a kid. Um, and she has since retired like several times from that and done tons of other little projects. Um, so my family's always been really tight. Growing up, my mom was the primary, primary like instructor with the homeschooling. Right. Um, she didn't work during that period of time. Um, so we were really, my sister and I had a, have a really close relationship with my mom. Our extended family is really, really big, and we have a lot of family in uh, Vancouver, BC, so we go up to Canada a lot, and so again, having super close ties with extended family. Um, but yeah, our, my, my mom, dad, and sister, we're just like buddies. Like it's We have a very interesting chemistry. What's we, that? Um, it's just like, I feel like we've always all just been friends. Like there's never been a very traditional like father-son, brother sister like like those relationships have always been i think pretty unique to our family just yeah. in the sense that like uh yeah so there know. was like no patriarchy or matriarchy no. kind of thing Not so at all. so when when you guys were kids um did they talk to you like you guys were adults always just like always okay. like there's there was never and i think i think it, it was a positive thing for sure i think that it instilled a lot of like um positive internal processing in my sister and I where we would like think about our decisions because of the way that our parents spoke to us um, and I was 17 when I had this very like massive epiphany of how important my parents were to me because mm -hmm. when I was 16 and a half I got my car my first car and my license which cost me all of my money and all of my time yeah. um, within the first month of having my car I pulled out of a Safeway and got hit by another car I lost my car and I lost my license. At the exact same time, I started I started college two years early while still going to a high school and I had gotten my first job. So I, I had to make this huge commute from our farm to the high school, to the community college, to my job. And I had no car and no transportation. Yeah. So my parents had to do all of that for me. Oh my God. On top of working jobs, like owning businesses, right? right? right. So... I remember this really like stark moment when I was in the car. We're on this road called the Guide Meridian. We're passing the mall, and I did, my mom was bringing me to work, and I just thought to myself, "Oh shit!" Like all the things that are happening in my life have been because of my parents, and all the ways that I make decisions up until this point in my life is because of like all of the tools that they gave me to utilize to like navigate life, right? For sure. So I've always had a I would say like a a pretty strong relationship with my parents and a deep respect for them. And, um, I mean, geez, anyone who like decides to take their toddler children across the country and buy a farm, like hats off to them. Yes. Yeah, right. Shit's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, one of my friends, I was talking to her, she has a, a kid. She had one like in the last year mm -hmm. 
and we were talking about how we were we were raised and how our parents talked to us like we were kids. Yeah. Like, they treated us like we were kids. We couldn't make decisions. Sure. Even things as small as like picking our clothes. Interesting. We, we couldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. Or like how we do our hair. Yeah. And what we were talking about was what that leads to is mm-hmm. an adult who is submissive in certain situations. Or they go the opposite way and just rebel. As hard know? as they can. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's like one or the other. Sure. And so um, what I've been finding is that that the talking to your kids like they're adults, like that seems to be the route that produces healthy adults because yeah. we're all just really children in yeah. adult bodies, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I've learned so much since being an adult is like no one really knows what's going on. Yeah. You know, we're all, we're literally all just learning the best we can every day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember, like I've always had an affinity for, for clothing and there was nothing more fun than going to the store with my mom because she would ask us what we liked and what colors we wanted and what styles. And then we would pick out our own outfits. And then this is a pretty funny memory. We got, I got this one outfit that I was super stoked on. Ironically, the pants are really similar to this. They're like, but they're like this taupe colored cargo pant with drawstrings at the bottom. And, And then I got like this sweater with it. And I couldn't have it until my birthday which was like a month away. So my mom put it in her closet. And I remember like when she was gone from the house, I would go into her room and like lay it out on <laughs> my parents' bed and just like look at it. And I loved it, you know? Like, so I think that in terms of like that uh, example, like my sister and I have always had a lot of ownership over our decisions and ownership over ourselves. Um, there's never been a patriarchy, matriarchy kind of thing with our family. Like, which, which I think sometimes makes some of the like, modern day conversations about that difficult for me to comprehend because everyone mm. in my family has always had an equal voice at the table. Yeah. Um, which sometimes leads to very like loud arguments, but we're all like, we're all saying our part and all listening, you know? And I think that's the way it should be for sure. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, my mom and dad are both very, uh, like intelligent, strong little people and have always just, you know, been unapologetic unapologetically themselves yeah for sure what what have you learned from either or both specifically like what have you learned from your dad yeah it stands out and what 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 have you learned from your mom that stands out you know so like i was saying my mom was way more the teacher when we were growing up but i've learned so many lessons from my dad that weren't implied um and it's uh it's kind of hard to put them into words. My dad and I have actually worked together in a number of like professional settings. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, he does a lot of consulting work in food and beverage, and I do similar work, but more on like the visual end of the spectrum. And um, I've definitely taken a step back a couple times when we're in that environment together and just seen the similarities in the way that we communicate with people, the way we present information. Um, I definitely try to dial it back because my dad is a lot like my dad for sure is like very similar to Gordon Ramsay and (laughs) he's just this short little white dude is very loud and very opinionated so like I think that I have a lot of my dad's uh personality traits in terms of communication but I've what I hope put a little bit of a damper on some of his uh more loud aggressive uh personality traits yeah for sure. um and then with my a mom, refined version of your dad yeah I'd, I'd like to i'd like to think so and, and then my mom you know i mean 
I think of the, the most important thing I've learned from my mom is like just always thinking outside the box and giving credence to ideas and being creative. There's a lot of times like I could remember growing up and like having a disagree, a creative disagreement with my mom and looking back and being like, oh yeah, she's totally right about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and still like utilizing some of those, like there's this one thing, my sister and I drew a lot when we were kids and my mom would, she always would say, Dylan, just grab a pencil, outline your drawing first and then go back over it with a pen or watercolors or whatever the hell you're gonna use. And I was like, no way, dude. Like, I hate how that looks, blah, blah, blah. Like, I wanted... <laughs> and, like, now it's like I, I never don't start a sketch with just, like, you know, a pencil. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's funny to think back about those lessons that we learned from our parents. And, like, I probably think about them daily for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. How do those um, arguments look? Like, how, how – I'm curious about how people argue, right? So yeah. sometimes it's just, like, Someone states an opinion, the other person states an opinion. Yeah. They're different, and then they just butt heads until one person either gives up or admits. Yeah. Um, I don't really argue with my parents anymore. I, don't, I can't really remember the last time we had an argument. I would say that a lot of the arguments that we had, especially when I was a kid, were mostly just me being a stubborn child, mm-hmm. right? My parents are really flexible, and they're pretty logical people. I'm also a really logical person, so I won't get into an argument with someone unless, like, I'm coming from a logical position that I mm. totally back, right? Right. So, I remember, like, reaching a point with my parents, and it was probably around that time that I was 17 and, like, had that epiphany about, like, you know, their role in my life, essentially, where I just stopped arguing with them because if I knew that they were right, and I, even if I didn't agree, I would just be like, well it's not worth me arguing over this because my like disagreement with them is rooted in like an emotional, you know, place rather than like a logic based place. You know, my sister for sure, uh, will lean into her emotions a lot more Mm -hmm. and, and just go full force with that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, we don't really, I can't remember the last time I argued with my parents. Usually, if if we argue, it's, like, during the holidays over something that's, like, completely pointless. And then we forget about it in three seconds. Of course. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so growing up in Bellingham, it's, like, a majority white area. Completely white. Um, So, I grew up in Portland, Mm -hmm. which is not as uh, white as Bellingham, but it is relatively white. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I was, like, the other always in every room. Yep. Right? I was, like, the one that represented my race everywhere I went. Um, so how did growing up in an area that was white affect how you looked at yourself mm-hmm. and your racial identity and all yeah. of that? Um, so that's a big topic. One of the things is you don't really know until you know, right? So I grew up being in a white area, like my entire childhood, I didn't really realize that. Mm-hmm. I've only started to realize it more probably in the past couple of years of my adult life and how much it really did affect me and how much it, I mean, yeah, man. I mean, I, f- I feel like you can, you can empathize with a lot of this, but like I was definitely the other, in, like when I, so I was in high school for two years and I went to a county school. I graduated with like 80 some kids that were either Russian immigrants from logging families or that's, that's about it. It was not very diverse, right? Yeah. Um, 
And I was always on the fringes, whether it's my own choice or something that I didn't have control over. Um, I liked heavy metal and I liked really loud, colorful clothing. Um, I was the first kid to ever wear Toms at my high school, those mm -hmm. shoes that look, and like people would make fun of me for that. So I feel like I sometimes made decisions that would allow people to make fun of me for something other than who I mm. actually was intrinsically. Right. Right. Right? right. So, and so that way it would like hit less hard. Um, but mm. you know, looking back my time in Bellingham, it was either you're not accepted or you're the token character, like you were saying. Right. Yeah. And I felt, and I've definitely experienced a lot of that. And, um, I think that it made me, it's made me overall like a little bit questioning of the way I go about building relationships with people now. I question people's uh, motive, uh, the reason and their reasons for wanting to engage with me. How, did, how does that come from that place? Because I felt like a lot of people didn't want to be around me because I was different. And... Right. Or they wanted me to be around to like set balance to their white group, you know? Right. Like we're, we're diverse. We have this one. Yeah. 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 yeah for sure. Yeah. And, um, it's hard to just be, to like not think about that. You know, it's hard mm -hmm. to like mm -hmm. when, when someone like wants to be your friend or in a dating scenario or even a work or professional scenario, it's like, I always think about it. I can't not think about it. Like, what am I, what am I to you? And is my, you know, ethnic background and appearance have anything to do with your decision making? And I think that no matter what, it always will, you know, yeah. no matter how woke people want to be, it's always going to be a part of the way we interact with others. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, man. I, now that you put it to words like that, like I, I understand completely what you're talking about. Like totally, especially, and that's in a way, that's why I feel more comfortable hanging out with groups that are not different than I am just because yeah. you know like well you're not liking me because of the race or For this sure. thing you're it, like it because removes of the me. question yeah yeah exactly so it kind of removes that variable yeah and like I said you don't know till you know right so I never thought about that when I was a kid and now looking back there's so many different situations that I was involved in where I think oh is it because you know x mm -hmm. um like I got in a pretty like major uh what do you, what would you call it? It wasn't a fight cause I wasn't fighting back, but like I got the shit beat out of me when I was in eighth grade mm. and, um, from someone who like is pretty objectively, uh, not woke and, <laughs> and uh, it, it's one of those things where I look back and I think, you know, cause I don't, I still to this day don't really know what like spurred that to happen. I mean, this is a guy who walked by me and literally just beat the shit out of me and oh, you didn't know him. Well, I, I mean, I knew of him at school, but I didn't know oh, who okay. he was. Right. But I mean, this dude was like six foot four, two eighty, and had a beard in eighth grade. You know, <laughs> I think he dropped out his junior year to do who the hell knows what. Yeah. Um, but I've, I have always associated people's ignorance to really, I mean, I guess it's the base of the word ignorance. You don't know. Right. And what you don't know, you fear and what you have fear of, you will probably become angry toward. And that's what I think a lot of the, the, the conflict we have in our country around like race issues is just because people don't know. 
And when they don't know about something, they want to, they resist it a little bit because it's outside of their comfort level. Yeah. So I've always tried to be as open-minded as possible because at the end of the day, when you get to learn about other people's cultures and who they are, it's going to bring so much more value and benefit to your life. Whereas like if you stay in this little bubble, I mean, you're just going to be trapped in your own fucking, your own vacuum chamber forever. And that's not how we grow and innovate. So I've never really had a disdain for how I grew up or the people who were around me. I chalk up the ignorance that I interacted with to people's just lack of knowing. Yeah. And I've always just put it upon myself to like, you know, take people at face value and take them by their word and nothing more, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so from Billingham or from the farm, you move on to the next chapter, which is the performer. Yeah. Man. Describe what this is about. So I would say that that chapter started in the farm. My sister and I were introduced to music lessons really, really young. And I started with piano. Piano turned into violin when I was probably like seven or eight. I did that until I was about 13. I turned piano, or I turned violin into bass guitar. Got a bass from a pawn shop. Turned bass into guitar. And then I turned guitar into drums when I was probably in like ninth grade. And um, like I said earlier, I was really into heavy music. It started with like... Gosh, where did my music my music taste start? Um, I was in a 4-H group. I lived on a farm, so I was part of 4-H. 4-H what is a nationwide organization for farm kids. So okay. it stands for Head, Heart, Hands, and Health. Oh. I, I think I still remember the, okay. the like little chant we'd do before our, yeah. our meetings. But anyways, I remember being at a 4-H meeting, and one of my buddies, Skylar, had a Walkman, like a CD player Walkman. And after the meeting, he was like, yo, guys, like you got to check out this song. And he played us a Good Charlotte song. Yeah. And I remember hearing the anthem by Good Charlotte on this thing. And I was like, oh, dude, that's the sickest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and that's when, like, violin was no longer cool to me. <laughs> um, but that translated into, like, no, no effects in Green Day and Bad Religion. Like, a lot of, like, punk music, like, heavier punk. Um, and then when I was between the, su the summer between 8th and ninth grade, I made some buddies with some guys who were seniors in high school. And they were really into metal. And they started showing me all this metal music. And they were like, yeah, well, like, we should jam sometime. One of those kinds of situations. And I'm like, listen to this music. And my first thought was, this is for sure like Satan worship music. Like, this is <laughs> so whack. Like, what is going on? But then I started learning the songs in guitar. And I found out about drop tuning, which is where you take the lowest string of your guitar. You bring it down two steps. And it changes the structure of how you play the guitar and how you make chords. Right. And then all of a sudden, I'm listening to this music and I'm playing along to it. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, so around that time, I was starting bands in high school. Really what that looked like is me writing music and then teaching my closest friends how to play the other instruments. Uh. So at this point, I'd accumulated the bass from the pawn shop, a guitar and a few amps from a pawn shop, a crappy drum set from Craigslist. So... I would have my friends come over, we'd have band practice in our barn, we'd piss off our neighbors so much. And then we'd, we played like, we played our eighth, we'd play like the lunchroom in, at, during oh, eighth right, grade, right. you know? Uh, we played like a couple homecomings, but no one liked our music because it was really loud and heavy, like it was not <laughs> appropriate at all. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it up. So that went to playing some like local shows in Bellingham, that expanded out to playing shows in Seattle. And me also, like, catching rides to Seattle, which was, like, you know, 100 miles south, to go to actual venues and see actual music. Yep. Um, 
so I became really enamored in the Seattle music scene. I started making connections down there. So by the time I was, you know, junior in high school, my parents were like, so what the hell are you going to do with your life? I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not backing down on this music thing. And they were like, really? Like, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like I had good grades and like, I was a smart kid, but I was like, no, like I'm doing this. So, um, I enrolled in a music program at a community college. It was an awesome combination of music theory, audio engineering, and music business. Um, I did that in two years. While I was there, I was, you know, I was uh, interning at venues and music studios, and I was writing a lot of music. I was playing a lot of shows. Still pretty hell-bent on, like, heavy metal, which no one really liked, but mm. I had some awesome times. I got to play with really cool bands that I liked. Um, I started playing in more types of bands as well. Um, again, all different types of instruments, um, bass, guitar, drums, whatever was needed. Um, after graduating from that program, I hopped on a couple small tours with a pop punk band and got to travel a little bit with them. And that whole period of my life, man, like it, it just like brought out this part of me that I didn't get to express anywhere else. And what was that? And that was just feeling like I could... I could be as weird and goofy or expressive as I wanted and people wouldn't judge me because I was in the space of like performing. Yeah. So you can do whatever you want. And like, yeah. there's every once in a while I'll look back at like pictures of like me performing. Right. And it's just like, dude, those moments are like so visceral. And like, I will never forget those shows because like you can, you can do whatever the hell you want on stage. You know, there's, I mean, obviously there's performers who have like very specific ways of how they are on stage. I never did. I was like, I don't give a shit. Like yeah. I'm going like balls to the wall, like the whole time, <laughs> you know? Right. And, um, yeah, man, getting off stage, being like just covered in sweat and like, you know, it's, it's just the best thing ever, man. And I miss it a lot. It's no longer part of my life, but, um, and it's, it's also interesting to look back and think about it in terms of like what would my life be like had I not invested so much time into mm. something that I just don't do anymore at all, Yeah, you know, but, um, it's all a part of the, the story, you know? Right. Yeah. So from the former, you move on to the next chapter, which is the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yep. So again, the entrepreneur part of me, I think has always been present. Um, going back to the farm, my parents were again like business owners um and they always like would encourage my sister and i to think about the things that we would do not necessarily in a means of like commodifying the things that we do but seeing the value in what we do mm. so if you draw a picture it's not just something to put up on the fridge there's actual value behind like what you're doing right if you're you know, taking care of vegetables and there's value in the produce that you then reap from the ground. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, mentioned earlier at one point, like we did this entrepreneur fair thing mm -hmm. where my sister and I like had our own booth and we had like a weekend to like create all the signs and the marketing and the branding for it. And our booth was, we like sold, it was called a snack shack, not super original, but we sold right. snacks right. they're like <laughs> dope, pretty dope snacks. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. I was like so jazzed about that, you know? And then when I was in bands, everything that I was doing to start these bands was essentially like starting a small business, right? Yep. You, you figure out your name, you figure out your sound, 
you have a logo, you produce a product, which is your music, you go out and do shows, which are like hosting events, you're producing merchandise, posters, album art, all these visual elements. And it all came to a point when I was on a tour and I was just like, I I can't keep doing this touring thing. I can't live in a van and like not know how I'm gonna make money. And I also didn't want to like bounce back and forth between having a half-assed job and doing tours until the touring thing paid off. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I essentially did is I was in the back of a, a tour van and distilled all of the, the skills that I'd put into being in bands and said, okay, I'm going to take out the performer aspect of it. Cause that's the part that I really love, but I know that that's not a super realistic lifestyle. Mm-hmm what is left over and it was you know doing a lot of design doing a lot of business stuff so i was like okay well i'm gonna go back to school i'm gonna get a bachelor's degree so that way i have a receipt that says hey i went to school i'm not an idiot i can commit you know i can get something done so i ended up going back to bellingham i i'd been gone for four years i went back there so you toured for four years uh it's more like two years okay yeah because the first two years i was just in school Right. Um, and then I stuck around in Seattle for a few more years while I was doing the whole tour thing. Got it. And God, living, that's the other part of it. Living in Seattle sucks. Like coming home to Seattle is not ideal. <laughs> I hate that city so much. Why? I don't know. I just think Seattle's trash. Like, <laughs> there's like so many better cities. <laughs> but it's, it's just like one of those things where like I never found a strong community in Seattle. Yeah. I always had good friends, but like. I don't know. I've been in Portland for like six months almost. And it's like, I already have like way more of a connection to this place yeah. than I ever do with Seattle. Yeah. We're going to talk about that too. Good. Cause that's <laughs> an important topic, but yeah, it's just like, I never felt like there was anything to hold on to in Seattle. I don't know. Hmm. It just felt like a very like disassociated, like detached community of like people who were just there on their own accord without any desire to like make a connection interesting yeah well there, there is that thing the um, seattle freeze yeah that yeah it's totally real man like it's it's a unfortunate culture and it's an unfortunate stereotype but it's a hundred percent real and um yeah it's i think that a lot of it has to do with the passive aggressive behavior of people on the west coast which gets further amplified as the weather gets shittier hundred percent so that's really what I yeah. think it is <laughs> um so anyways on the back of a tour van I use my phone as a mobile hotspot, pop on my laptop, register for classes for Western. The tour finished. I got home the day before school started. And by home, I moved back to Bellingham from Seattle. Yeah. That was September 22nd, 2014. I started September 23rd, 2014. Um, I graduated from Western in 2016. The two years that I was back in Bellingham, I pretty much dove headfirst into like the business community there. Uh, I was working for a nonprofit. I was doing a lot of like business pop-ups. I would use vacancies to host events. Um, I was hosting other big street fairs and street festival events with the nonprofit as well. I ended up taking a job after college as an asset manager for a guy who owned like a third of downtown. Okay. Uh, the promise was that I'd be doing a lot more visual work for him, developing brands and websites for the businesses that were in his buildings. Right. That for sure never happened. But when... I was working with him, an opportunity to open a hotel came up, um, which is the heliotrope. So he had two employees, me and a guy named Peter. And Peter and his wife had a bunch of Airbnbs, and they were like, well, we think that we should be able to get into a hotel. Like That seems like an easy like translation of our hospitality skills. Yep. 
Turns out that's 100% not true. So if you have a bunch of Airbnbs and it's going well for you and you think that you want to open a hotel, I would not recommend it. Yeah. Um, but we developed we, we developed a partnership. I got my dad involved because he had hospitality experience. Um, we opened this hotel and I did a lot of the visuals for it, you know, from the interior and exteriors of the, of the building and the rooms to the website, to our social media, to all of our photography and video, the marketing, the sales. Like I was... I, and I was also a partner in the business. Um, so that was a pretty major like leap in terms of like me just jumping into entrepreneurship and business. I was, I believe 24 when it opened. And, um, so that was a pretty like big thing to be involved in, you know, yeah, opening, a opening and owning and running a hotel. Yeah. Um, before that I had some involvement in starting businesses in 2012 um, I helped some buddies start a coffee company in Seattle, which has exploded and become like this huge deal. Mm. Um, I've always had a whole bunch of these little side hustles, but the hotel was for sure like the first one that really became like a very real, like this is a business formation. This is how an LLC looks. We have partners, we have investors. This is a thing that's open and making money kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I continued to stay involved in that until I left Bellingham but in the time I was in Bellingham, I started, I also opened a restaurant with a buddy. It was a barbecue restaurant called Burnt Ends. Um, same buddy and I also tried a, we market tested a product that was like a beverage. It was a, a part of the beverage industry, but it was a savory hot beverage that was intended to replace the desire to have coffee. Mm. Um, so it was bone broth based. And that was um, a really, really fun experience. Um, but around this time, the thing that, you know, I was lifting so much weight for these projects and I was getting super burnt out every single time. And I didn't love 90% of what I was doing. Yeah. And what I realized is hearkening back to when I was in bands, to the times I was in nonprofits, to the projects that I did in college, these businesses I was opening, I was realizing the 10% that I liked was like all the visual components. So developing a logo, creating a brand, designing little assets that were linked to that brand. That was the stuff that I really liked. Right. Um, so in 2000, I guess around 2017, I started working with businesses in Bellingham, helping them with their branding, helping them with their marketing. How did you approach that? Like, <clears throat> how did you start your relationships with different business owners? Well, so all those relationships really started when I moved back to Bellingham and I was working for a nonprofit, that nonprofit. Um, my, my, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but I started a program called Hatch. I was 21 when I did this. Um, what Hatch did is Hatch would develop relationships with property managers and building owners and at, pretty much say, hey, can we use uh, your vacant spaces downtown to do whatever we want? Mm. And some of them said yes. Then with that vacant space, we would clean it up. And by clean it up, I meant, I mean, I would clean, I would paint all the walls I would get furniture in there. I This one space we had, I literally blasted 60 gallons of black paint into the ceiling to make it look cool. Uh, it was the worst. I probably <laughs> killed like three quarters of my brain cells. <laughs> I had no mask, dude. Like It was, I think, over the span of a week, I was on a ladder with this huge spray gun, and it was like the foam ceiling, so it was just <laughs> absorbing all the paint. Yeah. But I was like, dude, I need to get the ceiling black. And it made the space look really cool. But So we'd make it, the space look cool, and then we would allow um, entrepreneurs to apply to utilize the space for a short-term term lease as a pop-up. 
if their business plan was working, then they could sign the long-term lease and take over the space. Around that, we would also do, we were doing little concerts and art galleries and yoga classes, like all sorts of cool shit in these spaces. Yeah. Um, we also, around that time, I started Morning Jam, which was a creative morning breakfast series in Bellingham, and we used the hatch space for that as well. Um, so I was engaging with a lot of people who owned buildings, ran businesses, managed uh, building spaces, um, and I was I was managing so much as a really young person. So a lot of people yeah. I think were remembering my name and thinking, okay, this young dude is like really like knocking heads and taking names. Like if I want something done, maybe I'll talk to Dylan Green. You know. Right. So over the span of the five years that I was in Bellingham, I kind of became this like known as this mover and shaker who would make shit happen. And um, people would reach out to me to talk about their business, if it was working or not. Usually it wasn't when they talked to me. And, um, and yeah, it was awesome, man. Like, it was really fun. I think was it 2000, 2017 was the first year of me independently running my own like consultancy, essentially. Working on my own. And I was making decent money. Uh, my projects were going well. I was essentially bootstrapping the work that a design or marketing agency would do, but doing right. it on my own without any like traditional education. And it was going well and I was learning a lot and I was building great relationships. But really the issue for me was I was in Bellingham and I didn't want to be. There was definitely a resentment of being back where I grew up. There was mm -hmm. a resentment of the size of the community, um, the people around me in a lot of ways. Um, when I said earlier, you don't know till you know. Once I moved to Seattle and traveled when I was on tour, then I knew. So when I went back to Bellingham, mm, I felt right. all the limitations in a totally new way. Yeah. Um, so I think probably in 2016, 17 is when I was like, I need to leave Bellingham. And I didn't until 2019, mm. which was last fall. Right. Yeah. But it was a, it was a crazy five years in Bellingham. Absolutely bonkers. For sure. So let's let's talk about that thing of you. I mean, the way that you describe how you got into the community and just started doing stuff and connecting with yeah. people. That's what I see when I meet you. When I yeah. you know when I got to know you. So we moved to Portland at the same time. Yep. I was away for like fifteen years. Yep. You never lived here. Yeah. Within like three weeks of you moving here, I think that's when we met. Yeah. And you had already known like half the city. <laughs> like we would sure, walk around sure. random places yeah. and you would just know people. <laughs> yeah. So what, what is that? I mean, one thing I'm interested in is like your perspective because some people are shy and mm -hmm. you are not. So, and when a shy person walks into the room, they see a lot of people and they, they think one thing. Yeah. They feel one thing. Yeah. So how do you, when you walk into a room, what do you think about people? How do you feel? Well, I think one important thing to make note of is I'm 100% introverted. I just know how to be an extrovert mm. um, in almost like this sociopathic like way of like being someone that mm. that is me, but is leaving behind like the the terrified screaming voice of do not do this, do not yeah. do this. Yep. Um, and I think a lot of that was born out of the necessity to accomplish the things that I have done, you know, starting businesses, like building connections so you can find investors, um, showcasing your concept or your business idea to people so that, that you get buy-in, you know, like 
you have to go, I've had to go so far outside of my comfort zone to do that. And it's never, ever easy. It's never gotten easier. Um, I mean, the last project I did in Bellingham, it was a nine month project. I was a campaign manager for a guy running for mayor. I mean, I talked to more people in 2019 than I've talked to in my entire life. And very few of those conversations were easy for me. Um, But I know how, I know how to approach a topic. Um, I've had a lot of pretty weird experiences, so I feel like I can, you know, create a lot of like parallels in a conversation to make the other person feel comfortable or heard um, in a conversation. Um, So it's really like when you see someone and and you feel that ner- the nerves, mm-hmm. um, you let the thing that you want to do Lead. guide you. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Like, uh, yeah, it's exhausting. It's super exhausting, but there's benefits that come from it. Right. So like, I think knowledge is definitely power. Information is in like learning is the most important thing in the world. It's my favorite thing ever. Right. I love mm-hmm. learning. And I kind of said this earlier when we were talking about like diversity a little bit, but it's like learning about people, their experience, their culture, their heritage, their family, their interests. Like that's really, really interesting to me. I love doing that. And I love like chatting with people about the things that they're really interested in or their projects or what they're working on. And, um, if along the way I can inject what I'm doing, then that's just like an added bonus. But, um, yeah, I think that I, I really have a passion for like listening to people and like hearing people out. And um, I always like to provide some form of value in a conversation where um, someone can walk away and think think back on the conversation and maybe pull something from it, which will benefit them. And uh, yeah, moving to Portland, like um, I had come out of the most difficult project I'd ever embarked upon, which was that mayoral candidacy. Yep. And so I think that there is a little bit of this like, I was springing back from this like really, really like intense experience. Um, I put myself into, I intentionally put myself in a community that's heavily creative and I, I didn't have like any specific like benchmarks or quotas of like, this is how many people I want to meet. This is how many events I want to go to. But I was like, I want to be successful in this community, uh, both socially and professionally. And I want to meet people who are doing the work that I want to do here. So I just went gangbusters and like, how did that look? So, I mean, dude, so I'm, when I moved here, the, I left Bellingham at 4am. I got my keys by 945 in the morning and I had literally everything out of the truck and in my apartment by 2:30 in the afternoon I had the truck returned and had Ubered back to my apartment by 315. And I had everything organized by 530. Oh my God. I took a 30 minute nap <laughs> and I had, I had a buddy here and we went out until like 1am. So it was just, I feel like that is like a pretty fair, like, uh, like, um, kind of like a structure for like the first two months here. Like mm-hmm. it was like every single moment of every day. I was like, what can I either be doing by myself or within the community to like meet people, to introduce myself to folks, to let people know who I am and what I do. And yeah, I mean, whether I was like walking down the street and just popping into businesses and saying what's up to people or going to events, like the fourth day I was here, I went to an event at the Wakeham Experience Center on the West Side. Um, I paid, you know, this is actually interesting. I signed up for this class before moving here. What's that? 
it was a um, it was a workshop with this guy named Adam Garcia who was like a he was in Portland for eight or nine years uh, worked with Yeezy worked with Nike he's creative director for a music festival like um, used to run his own studio mm. awesome dude like I aspire to meet some of the things that he's done in my life um, but the fourth day I was in in Portland I went to this like workshop of his and it was. I actually met a lot of people at that that I'm still like really good friends with yep. and like hang out with and talk to like on a daily basis. Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing, dude. And, and then that was the other thing too, is like, you know, I show up, I was shaking people's hands, introducing people to, to me and my story. And they're like, wait, you've been here for four days. Like you're like jumping in. I'm like, well, yeah. Like what else am I going to do? Like sit on my couch, you yeah. know? Well, a lot of people would though. I, which to me is like not a not a reality like it's not a possibility ever yeah to like just sit and twiddle my thumbs um the other the hard part about it though man is like i've been here for six months and it's already hard to manage my time and yeah i i mean <laughs> I, I and i'm sure like a lot of people could say this but like hanging out with people and like keeping track of all the people that i'd like to hang out with it could be like a full-time job for sure <laughs> you know 100 yeah. percent. and it's especially as an adult, like we have to be responsible for ourselves and our time. And it, I've definitely run into a number of situations where people are like kind of offended by my lack of ability to either communicate on just like a social level or like hang out. Right. And it's made me really question like who I am and how I do things. And um, one thing that I definitely have felt is this like kind of disdain toward the whole term, the hustle. Yeah. You know, like you got your like Gary V's and all your YouTubers out there who are like hustle, hustle, hustle. I think that's bullshit. I think that the hustle implies that you're removing your humanity from your passion and you're commodifying your art in a way that is like inhumane in a way. Yeah. I think that you can be really successful and really grind shit out, but it's important to maintain the balance of self care and maintaining your relationships. With all that being said, though, like I was saying, some of these interactions I've had with people have made me question, like, how much, how busy I am. And... Like, like, question it how? Like, am I doing it all wrong? Am I, am I actually, like, am I treating my friends poorly? Am I being a shitty person? Like, am I working too much? Am I stretching myself too thin? And recently I've just been like, nah, dude, fuck you guys. Like, <laughs> honestly, like, I, I love people. I love all my friends unequivocally, but I'm busy as fuck and I can't hang out with you every day. Yeah. And if you want to be like, and these are to like the people in my life, like if you want to get the best of me, it's really going to be like whenever, not all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and I am not going to, that's one thing that I'm not going to apologize for. And I, like I said, I've been in some situations where I'm like, yeah, it's totally my bad. Like, I need to make myself more available. Like, you're totally right. Like, my life's this, that, and the other. And recently, I've been like, nah, dude. Like, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy, like, having a lot of things going on. It really actually helps my creativity. That is the creative space that I like being within. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a learning process. I completely understand that. Yeah. Like, as I think as you grow up, too, and the people around you start growing up, um, you start to realize that nobody really has that much time. Yeah, And if you can even spare, like, an hour or two, yeah, like, a month to hang out with this person, yeah. it's like, 
that's important because yeah. you know money is i mean time is our time is all we have yeah yeah no for sure man and i think that people's expectations of like socializing are are so misconstrued by social media like like you said like getting lunch or just like hanging out for an hour might be all that you can do with someone in a month and that's totally chilling for me. Yeah. But some people, it's like, no, nah, we got to hang out for like four days and like go to Ibiza. I'm like, nah, dude. Like, are you insane? And like some of my like closest friends, we only see each other a couple times a year, you mm-hmm. know? And and I think it's because of that like mutual respect we have for each other's time and the mutual appreciation we have for the time that we have together. And right. and I do think that, you know, for for folks who are like, craving more there's a little bit of an insecurity in the way that they like actually treat themselves and use their own time yeah you know and it's like i'm i can't be there to like to compensate for whatever shortcomings i have nothing to do with in their life you know yeah for sure so um so you said that when you when you talk to people you do feel like the nerves Mm -hmm. and then you get through it Mm -hmm. can you describe what that what the nerves feel like like get into that yeah um yeah how would i put that um okay so i think a lot of it has to do not necessarily i I don't focus on the nerves because then i'd never be able to do any get anything done right yeah i approach i i always focus on the validation that will keep me going right a validation could just be someone shaking my hand back Mm. or um someone engaging in a conversation and there are these little validators that I find that are markers in that conversation that I'm keeping track of in my head, you know? So like right. I said, the way someone might shake my hand, the way that they say their name, the way that they introduce themselves and talk about themselves, I'm keeping track of all these things. Um, I really try to keep track of people's names, uh, the things that they're interested in, if they say their kids' names, if they say the place that they're from. And all these little bits of information like make up this person in my mind. And, and like I said, I take people at face value, which to me is like what they're willing to share with me. And as I get to hear more about this person, I become more and more comfortable because I know this person is willing to engage with me, you know? And, uh, yeah, man, I, but yeah, I do not focus on the nerves because then it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But there's, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've either been at an event and been just like, man, what am I doing here? Like, this is so rough. Or even been in my apartment and being like, I don't want to go to this thing that I committed going to. But then once it's over, I'm like, wow, my life just changed because of that, you know? That's amazing because from the outside looking in, nobody would ever be able to guess that you feel that way. Oh, I mean, sure. Thanks, man. Sure. I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's... uh, I just don't think that, like, what's a good way to put it? Um, I'm trying to think of, like, a, a, a good, like, humble, objective way to put it. But it's just, like, everyone has their own fears and insecurities and their own anxieties. And um, I, my, my, like, fears and insecurities and anxieties, I don't think I've ever, like, gone away. I've just figured out, I just know them better. You know, yeah. it's kind of like that movie Inside Out, you know, there's mm-hmm. a little, every emotion has an archetype and it's like, I've just identified those archetypes. I know, and I know them well now. 
So I know when to like give them credence and I know when to be like, well, you're just going to back be in the backseat for a bit, you know, for sure. Um, how would you describe the current journey that you're on? Oh my gosh. Well, every year of my life since I turned 19 has gotten crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier. Um, I'm, I think an important part of the story is that I'm single and, (laughs) (laughs) and there's been times where I've been in relationships and I keep promising the person like next year won't be this crazy. Once this project wraps up, like I know, and it's, and now I've gotten to this point where I'm like, dude, like I got to stop saying this shit. Cause like, it's just not happening. Right. Some of it has to do with me. Some of it just feels like this shit I step into because a lot of the things, a lot of the craziest journeys I've been on have had nothing to do with me. And I think that goes to the whole like testament of a lot of the coolest things we'll ever experience in life. We don't decide, you know, but I do believe that like who we are as a person will manifest that into existence. Um, so yeah, man, it's, uh, the journey that I'm on right now has been a trip because like, I, like we've talked about, I moved to Portland. I moved here to really concentrate my experience in design and to focus what I'm doing in that. And I would say that I've made by far the most exponential progress in my own personal abilities in design but also in just survival, dude, like moving to a new city, not knowing anyone starting at zero and coming from a community where you had gone as deep as you can possibly go yep. is difficult. And um, so I think the journey that I'm on has been a lot of learning about this community here in Portland, um, identifying the different opportunities that exist here within the design community and the creative community. Um, and then trying to find my place within all of that. And, and I think that so right now it seems like the place that I'm landing on is no different than anywhere I've ever been, whether it was in Bellingham or Seattle or in a band or in a business, which is a relatively independent doer and thinker who's implementing things at the speed of light. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, originally when I moved here, I was like, well, I want to work at Nike or I want to work for an agency. And, um, that didn't happen. Maybe it will next week, but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing my own thing and it's really, tr- it's really difficult. But, uh, one of the interesting things is like a lot of the people that I've met with who work at agencies or brands here, we share our stories and we talk about what we're up to. And the overwhelming message I've gotten is from the other side of the table is just keep doing what you're doing. And I think part, part of that story is it's like, for the people I've met with who are like mentors of mine or like people that I really look up to, they like worked at a brand and then worked at an agency and then started their own thing. Yeah. And it's like, I'm just doing it backwards, but maybe never doing the other stuff, you know? Yeah. And, um, so all the, all the really difficult parts about it, I think also it's just the reality of when you're an independent contractor, it's just freaking a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, for sure. It's but, like a hunter. Yeah. Is- a gatherer. Yeah. It's so rough, dude. But like, but it's really fun because like my, the successes that I have are, I mean, are mine. Like I did it all, you know, like yeah. I just finished a rebrand for a company and they're like super jazzed on it. And it's like, dude, I like knocked out a giant project in three weeks. You know, mm-hmm. like I set deadlines for myself. I set expectations for myself and expectations for the client. 
and we both met all of those and um, something that didn't exist three weeks ago now is a real thing, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. So it's, so yeah, I guess the journey I'm on is really the path of honing in on my creative abilities. Um, and as I get older, always reminding myself to stay fresh, to stay open-minded, to always be learning, be open to new ex- opportunities and experiences. And um, yeah, who knows? Who knows where the road will take Kumo and I? <laughs> yeah. Um, what are you afraid of feeling the most? Mm, that's a good question. I don't think it's necessarily afraid of what I will feel. It's afraid of when I do feel something. And that feeling is is questioning the path and the journey that I'm on. So, man, when was it? It must have been, I think it was January 5th. I was on Powell Boulevard. I was driving to Joanne Fabrics. I was mocking up a project. And I, and I, in the Joanne Fabrics parking lot, there's a recruiting office for the, for the military. Right. And I, I drove by it. And I think for like 48 hours, I was just thinking, what, why am I doing what I'm doing? This is totally pointless. Like, I don't know if I can get a job here. I don't know if I can pay my bills. I want to do all this creative work, but like, what, what is it actually like going to chalk up to at the end of the day? And I was like, why don't I, like, I could literally just join the military and not have to worry about all this other shit. I'd have to remove so much from my life, but maybe that would bring me some like peace and serenity. And I would just do that, you know, just hand myself over. Um, so questioning my foundation is really, is not okay. I can't do that. It's Mm -hmm. the worst. So how do you deal with that situation? Like that when, when you uh, went through that? Um, being creative. So just getting back to the work? Yeah. Getting back to the work, just doing something that's creative, man. Um, whether it's shooting a show or drawing something or doing a, you know, tutorial online or anything, dude, like I have to be creative. I have so many different mediums. Um, but at the end of the day, like I think when, yeah. And the thing is too, is like creativity, especially as a designer, when you're designing in a, in a commodified space, um, it needs validation. Yeah. A lot of times there's times when internal creativity is really great for me these days. That's like guitar. Like I'll just play guitar. Like I'm not in a band, but like just playing guitar can be really fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and, you know, I think a part of that fear is like when I'm working on stuff that has no like end game, you know? Um, but then at the same time, like when I'm really, really busy on client work and I have zero time for just pointless, like creativity, I'm also pretty like miserable. So it's finding that balance between like commodified validation and personal validation within my creativity and letting those things kind of ebb and flow so that I can live in this middle ground of because I, th- I think the some of the conflict feeds off of each other, you know? So I kind of have to float in this middle area between those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that is something that I always ask myself. And I feel like a lot of creatives ask themselves, which is yeah. like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Is, is, is this impacting the world in any way? Mm-hmm. Like, when you go to school or when you're a kid, you dream of, like, these big things of mm-hmm. affecting the world. And then when you get into it, it doesn't feel as big, right? Of course, yeah. And so it's like a, 
you find yourself always questioning. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, we get so much input these days with all the social media platforms that we engage with. And yeah. when you see people getting validation for such bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. I go on TikTok and see shit. I'm just like, dude, what in the heck? Like people are like picking the lowest hanging fruit and just winning yeah. so hard. So it's like it, it kind of skews our purpose it skews our perspective. It skews how we view our own creativity and the value that we should be getting. Um, so I think that, like I was saying, having that middle ground between, you know, kind of pointless creativity and commodified creativity is for me is important. But then also knowing that validation is um, is kind of an empty vessel, and you have to be fulfilled within yourself before approaching something right you know so when you look at it i mean the commodified uh versus the um the personal or or yeah selfish reasons Mm -hmm. do you also look at it as like a way to serve versus a way to do something that you actually like doing oh yeah is that another way to look at it um you know i wish i could say yes because i feel like that would be very like selfless of me but at the end of the day no it's like what's gonna make me money versus like what do Mm. i just want to do yeah yeah. you know um but yeah i i think that one thing for sure is desperation stinks and if you're desperate it will leak through your creativity and i think that i think that all creatives will struggle with that at some point maybe multiple times because dude being creative is a very volatile unknown pathway you never know like where you'll end up i mean i just uh i just finished the bobby hundreds book for this second time and dude like he never expected any of what happened with the hundreds to really happen you know obviously him and um his business partner like busted ass but like they didn't really expect it to be where it is now yeah and you could never say i mean you could never take the hundreds what it is on paper right now and 14 years ago say, okay, we're, we got to get there. That's not possible. Right. Yeah, right. Um, but if you're desperate and you're really like wearing that on your sleeve, it will never benefit you. A hundred percent. Yeah. You see that all the time. I mean, and you feel it too when people approach yeah. you and they feel desperate. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a really cringy sort of thing that it's like a, you feel like they're looking up to you in a God way. Like you have something yeah. they need. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's unhealthy. It's kind of like one of the things like with the events that some of the like design events I go to mm-hmm. where you're bumping shoulders with some people who are at a college level and some people who are like CEO level at freaking Nike or something. There's a lot of young people who walk around with like resumes yeah. that are just like passing them out and like kind of like begging for work. And it's like, dude, don't do that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, like it's just kind of gross. But how do you get past that desperation and into a, a position of confidence? You ha- you have to figure out what you're confident in, and and if you're not confident, you have to figure out what you like doing, and then make yourself good enough for yourself that you're confident in what you can do. Yeah, you know, and actually, I mean, I can go back to the whole like the farm, dude. Like, I would show sheep, which is a very weird thing to say, but. <laughs> um, Fit and show is like this really weird thing. Like there's a, a certain way to hold a sheep. 
you hold them by their jaw, you can lead them in different directions based on how you like manipulate their jaw. And these are very, very light touches. There's ways to show, you have to show their legs, you have to show like their teeth, their ears, their the fleece, the lanolin in their fleece, there's all sorts of different things, right? I got really good at that when I was a kid. I started with having literally zero idea of that and I got really good. Yeah. I won all sorts of like trophies for this shit. That's the craziest <laughs> thing to brag about, but like I killed it at showing sheep, right? And like raising sheep. Right. Um, but I got confident about that. So like I could show other people how to do it, you know? Yeah. And, and that's like one of the things they say is like the best way to know that you're good at something is if you can teach it. And I think that like that's important is like to be able to get to that level with like what you're doing. It's like if you can make something teachable and if you can really explain it to people in a manner that is like universally, universally like understandable, it's like then you're confident in that thing and then you don't have to be desperate anymore. If you're desperate, it probably means that you're not good enough, <clears throat> you know? Yeah. And you have to take it upon yourself to get good. Like, it's no one else's responsibility. That's why I don't like um, education these days. It's fucked, dude. Like, the way a university, to me, works is it's, like, it's churning out all these students who are, like, asking for something. Yeah. Begging, like, because they're not really learning enough. And for me, my education came from, like, jumping and just doing something. <clears throat> just doing the work. And then by the lessons that I learned in th those environments... I'm there in confidence that I can carry myself well in settings where more opportunities will then spur from. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> um, what do you feel or who do you feel pressured to be for other people? Oh, that's a great one. Um, hmm. I definitely, well, present. <laughs> I definitely feel the pressure to be present yep. um, in a lot of social settings. Um, I feel pressured to be more of a traditional man, someone who's capable of being in a relationship, someone who's capable of making it to all the family gatherings. Um, the pressure of having a certain amount of money in my savings account of having a certain type of car. Um, I feel the pressure of being a mi minority in a white community and being an advocate for myself and the people behind me. Um, and, uh, to all that, it's just like, dude, I just let it roll over my shoulder really, because I can only do so many things and be so many different types of people. And like I kind of said earlier, it's like, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that's all I can, that's all I can be for people, you know? <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question. We as humans put up statues of people, not because we love those people, but because we love what those people represent. So if we, when you pass and we have to put up a statue of you, what would you want that statue to represent? And what would you want that statue to be? Oh yeah. Wow. That's a friggin' good one. Good question, Dustin. Um, <laughs> I think that <clears throat> I'll start with like what it would represent because I already try to represent this in my life, which is people should always, always give credence to the creativity that they feel that they want to express. I think that everyone, <clears throat> everyone has a creative side to them. Obviously some people more than others. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone should be a designer or an artist. 
but let yourself be playful let yourself be curious and explore what it means to like follow an idea because it's so healthy to do that and a lot of my friends who I've seen go through the corporate hierarchy because like you know I'm in my later 20s now so I have friends who are like in career jobs and they're really really bummed and all of them come to me to talk about ideas because like I'm the guy who just follows crazy ideas blindly all the time and with some of those friends we've worked on projects together and they've resulted in like my friends who are in like pretty like drab parts of their life like feeling a vast sense of fulfillment and um so i think that yeah i would just hope that my statue would represent the like the recognition that humans are more than just our physical bodies we're more than just the jobs that we work and the relationships and status that we have it's more about like who you are and like what you what you intrinsically feel that you can create you know yeah and then if it was what would the actual statue be i mean dude (laughs) maybe like um maybe like a, a chicken's body with a sheep's head and it's like emerging from a bowl of pho. <laughs> and there's like a, a machine in it that makes like steam come out of it at all times. <laughs> all right, man. Hell yeah, dude. Thank you, bro. Yeah, thank Appreciate you, Appreciate it, man. That was fun <laughs> as hell. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you or someone you know would be interested in being interviewed for the Earthian podcast, reach out to us on Instagram at WeAreEarthian. And of course, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you and have a beautiful day.